This is the Tribune Audio Network. This is the Backstory Podcast. I'm Larry Potash, and on this show, we dig into some of the most intriguing mysteries, figures, and forgotten histories from Chicago and beyond. Phil Cresta was arguably the best thief on the eastern seaboard. For decades, he swiped diamonds and robbed armored cars. Using an alias, he was finally living a quiet life as a toy store owner in Chicago. And suddenly, federal agents caught up to him in 1974. Not even his wife understood why the man she knew as Tony Zito was being arrested. Only later did she learn his real name and his real reason for coming to Chicago. Phil Cresta was on the run from both the law and the mob. Let's get into the backstory of Phil Cresta. An early life of crime landed Cresta in prison. As he did his time, Cresta noticed the lockpickers always seemed to live longer than the mobsters. So when he got out, he became a thief. The crimes usually went unsolved. No one saw Cresta coming or going. He stole millions, and nobody knew until he confessed to it all. On the day of JFK's inauguration in 1961, Phil Cresta snuck onto the snowy streets of Boston using a hacksaw. He cut three parking meter heads from their posts. When he unloaded them at the North End Social Club, the wise guys there laughed at him for wasting time on nickels and dimes. But Cresta wasn't after the coins, he was after the keys. He had a mob-connected locksmith in Chicago make copies. Back in Boston and dressed in uniform, he would open one meter after the next, leaving only a small amount of change behind. Cresta stole the equivalent of $2,000 a day. Biographer Brian Wallace says Cresta got a tip that after a year and a half, the city was finally changing the locks on the meters. You know, because they were getting hit so much, they were losing so much money, they decided to change the whole system. He was dating one of the secretaries in the uh, transportation department. So she told him that. So he said, okay, my, my gig's done. So he said to his friends, listen, if anyone wants in on this, you know, he can get in for like $50,000. $50, for 50 grand, he sold them worthless keys. The mob wasn't laughing anymore. Mob boss Jerry Angelo wanted his share. Well, Phil never respected Angelo, so when they asked him if he wanted to be made or if he wanted to go through the process, he said no. And his brother, his, his brother Billy said yes. So Billy was a made guy and Phil wasn't. So Phil had to walk that line that if he robbed something, he couldn't let the cops find out because he'd go to jail. When Julo found out, he'd kill him. So he had to walk this fine line, you know, and every robbery, everything, that, that neither one could find out. Chicago was what saved him, because in Boston, if you stole something in Boston, you had to get a fence in Boston, and, and there would be, in Julo's eyes, the cop's eyes, you know, everyone would be looking. But Phil would take his stuff right to Chicago, you know, and his, his brother-in-law, Augie Sorella, would, would fence it for him, and then send him a check. Cresta's sister was married to Augie Sorella, brother of Capone bodyguard Nick Sorella. The Chicago outfit also helped out with Cresta's biggest heist of all in 1965. The Target, a safe used by jewelers in Boston's Parker House Hotel. 
And he found out what they did every night is that they would take the, the diamonds that weren't sold and they would put them in this box and then put it in the safe until seven o'clock in the morning until when this alarm sounded and they would come and get their box and sign for it again. So Phil and, uh, said, to his, said to his partner, I need a small little guy to come fit in the box. And he says, how small? He said, small. Mob-connected jewelers dropped their trunk in the safe. Inside the trunk, Cresta's short partner with nothing more than a flashlight, oxygen tank, and a sandwich. When they close it, he opens the dummy lock. He unlocks the lock and, and goes to all these major diamond places. He stole all the jewels in the safe. The jewelers return the next morning to retrieve their trunk with the partner inside and millions in diamonds. It was almost $3 million in diamonds. And it was funny when they opened the door, you know, Phil was the first one there to get his, get his, his box there. All these diamond guys were screaming, you know, where's my wife, not my knife, nothing, huh? How could they steal the diamonds inside the lock safe? Cresta also targeted Brinks trucks. One Brinks heist in 1968 netted 800 grand, worth nearly six million today. Everything he did was so meticulously planned. He had two partners, would drive them crazy because they'd say, Phil, come on, wait, you know, how many times are you gonna go over this? He'd say, not yet. And then like he'd wake up and it'd be snowing, I'd say, okay, let's go. You know, and they, but everything was around the weather because people reacted differently, they saw differently. After the Brinks heist, Cresta was put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, but that wasn't his biggest problem. And Julo put a contract out on him. The hitman, Phil's own brother, Billy. So Phil said, what are you going to do, kill me? He said, no. He said, I'm getting the hell out of here. So Billy went to uh, Florida, and he stopped in Chicago to see Tony Accardo. And Accardo really liked Billy, so he called in Julo. He said, listen, Billy Cresta's coming back to get his stuff. He said, and if anyone lays a hand on him or his brother, I'm coming to Boston. So in Julo totally backed off. Cresta survived the mob hit. He moved to Chicago and ran a toy store under an alias, Joe Zito. When he came to Chicago, he just relaxed. Didn't have to worry about it, Julo or the cops. Or, you know, so he loved Chicago. He became friends with Mayor Richard J. Daley. He gave him a badge. <laughs> he got stopped, pulled, he got pulled over by the cops for speeding Chicago, and he pulled out the Mayor Daley badge, and they let him go. <laughs> but Mayor Daley didn't know really who he was because he had an alias in Chicago. Oh, right? yeah, he was, yeah, Joey Zito, yeah. No, he had no idea. No one did. Cresta changed his name, job, and residence. But what didn't change was his social security number, and it proved to be his undoing in 1974 when the feds showed up at the toy store. His wife was watching television, and they showed the toy store, and she had no idea that he had this other life. And so she's watching this whole thing break out on TV, and she had a nervous breakdown. She just, like, you know, just couldn't handle it, you know, and, and uh, she was never the same, unfortunately. After serving 12 years, he died penniless in 1995 at the age of 67, shortly after giving his final confession to Bill Crowley, a retired police detective and friend of the family. I mean, I think everyone wants some credit for what they, what they did, especially when, when no one thought they did it. He was proud of it. He was, he was. He, I mean, some of the things he should have been proud of. I'm from Southie. I know a lot of you know, bad guys and, and bad good guys, like what Bell just said. But this guy was different. He was like, he was his own guy. He was just this, this 
He's a very bright guy who, who got things done and, and just got away with it. Thanks for listening to Backstory. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast or leave a review. To watch our full coverage of this story and see some that didn't make it to the podcast, visit us online at WGNTV.com slash Backstory. This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.